Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 277. Today was Tezvav El, exactly the midpoint of this month that both concludes, and we make a cheshben, an accounting for the past year, as well as Kedesh HaChana, preparing for the new year. But Tezvav El also has a significance, particularly in the Chabad calendar, which of course is, uh, affects not just Chabad, but the world itself, the entire Jewish world and the entire world, that on this day was the founding of Temchet Mimim Lubavitch. Yeshiva's Temchet Mimim in the year Tofresh Nun Zayin, 122 years ago, on this day. So let's talk about that since it's the day. We'll also talk about Chayel, which is later in the week, and also about Pasha's Kisove, this coming Shabbos, and this is the week of Pasha Kisove. So, Tezvavel. Tezvavel is a theme we've spoken about a number of times. And uh, what was the significance of the establishment of the yeshiva? So the Rebbe Rashab, who founded the yeshiva, and appointed his son, Ben Yochid, the Friedrich Rebbe, to be the Menahel, to be the leader, to uh, lead the yeshiva and direct it. it was, the focus of it was, as he puts in a Kuntus Eitzachayim, he wrote an entire Kuntus, entire booklet, Describing the purpose of the yeshiva, he says there are many yeshivas and there are many good yeshivas teaching Torah. He's not here to just add another yeshiva, another to learn Torah alone. But it's to train a generation of students with Torah and with Avfedis HaTfilah and with Primis HaTorah to be armed, to be able to face and deal with the challenges that are coming, meaning not just Torah theoretical and academic, but applied Torah. Applying it to real life and doing it in a way that will be require a mesidus nefesh and a and a love and passion, which isn't just purely driven by abstract academia and knowledge and information, but a total commitment which comes through primis satayda that adds that chayis and that vitality. And later in a talk that he delivered in Tafre Samachalaf and Simchas Teda, which is 1901, 1900 actually. He speaks the famous talk he gave, all those that go out into the war of the house of David, and describes the yeshiva in that context as warriors, but not in the military sense, not in the physical sense, but spiritual warriors, who will fight the, the, the cynicism, and will fight the skepticism, and will fight those that oppose the divine, and that oppose Mashiach, as he elaborates in that talk. So when you think of it that way, a yeshiva, not just to teach, not to minimize in any way the knowledge of Teda and the learning of Teda and becoming a, a observant Jew, being an observant Jew that's committed to mitzvahs behidr and avedas atfila and everything that Judaism asks of us, but in addition to that, to be armed to be able to go out and fight those battles that were brewing and would only accelerate in the 20th century. So in that sense, its relevance to us is, is, extremely, um, is extremely relevant because we are in a generation where we face many, many battles in that context, spiritual relevance, Judaism's relevance, and uh, the high rates of assimilation. So here you see the fruition of the vision of the Rebbe Rashab, that the building of the yeshiva was to create a training ground for people to deal with these challenges today. And as a result, that's where the Rebbe plucked his, his soldiers, the young men and women that were going out on shlichus, are educated in Temchit Mimim. 
And the relevance to each one of us, of course, is that we are not just learning Teda, I'm not just keeping mitzvahs, but we're also here to use it in a way that applies and creates a way to excite people in a passionate way to be committed to make Nadira betachtenim and bring the Geulah and bring the Mashiach. So in the context of Chassidus Applied, how apropos it is, I myself learned in Tempret Mimim, was trained there, so I'm a product, one of the products of this, uh, of this training school, taught and trained in the ways of Teda and Chassidus and a methodology, as I said, to empower people, to enlighten them, to inspire them, and to ultimately give them all the resources that they already have and reveal in them the, the compelling sense of urgency to go out there and be a proactive Jew, a Jew that's driven by passion to commit, committed to changing the environment around you and ultimately the world around us all. Say, Chayel, as we know, Chayel is, of course, the birthday of the Shnei HaMa'edah Sagdelin, the birthday of both the Baal Shem Tev and the Alter Rebbe, the Miyasar of Tedes Chassidus HaKlolis, the founder of the General Chassidus, and the founder of Chassidus Chabad, both on Chayel. And the expression was that it was, they were both born Yem Revi. This year it's also Yem Revi, Chayel, as well, as I, yes. On the Wednesday, and Yem Revi, it says, not by Sheyem, Shebay Notlo HaMe'eris. Time when God basically hung up the great luminaries in heaven, the two great luminaries, and in this case, the Balshemtev and the Alter Rebbe, who both brought what we just described and revealed the inner dimension of Teda, the Primisa Teda, that was always there, was given at Matan Teda, but then as the generations, especially in later generations, was necessary, both because the world is a darker place and also as we get closer to Mashiach, we have a foretaste of what will happen in Mashiach's times, to learn the inner dimension, to learn about godliness, not just what God wants of us, not just the mechanics of Judaism, but the inner workings of the neshama, of the, the higher oil, the higher worlds, and everything that we accomplish that is so important today. Because without it, unfortunately, we live in an environment, without it, that we can also just have mechanical Judaism and technical Judaism, but not necessarily see and feel its personal vitality and relevance in our lives. Each in their own ways, the expression used that the Alta, the Barshemtav taught that every person can serve God, every person can reach God. And the Alta Rebbe taught how everyone can reach God. The example, one of the examples that Friedrich Rebbe gives is, the, is that the, is that the, as the, that the Barshemtav provided the ladder, and the Alta Rebbe taught us how to climb the ladder. And the process created a comprehensive system of Chesidus Chabad, whereby the Barshemtav and the Magid is still all in the Kudus short points, and the Alter Rebbe was Marchivit, especially after Peterburg, after he was released from prison after the story of Yutas Kislev. So we have today a comprehensive blueprint that applies Teira and Yiddishkeit in a personal way, in addressing all the challenges that we have. And not just the body of Judaism, but also the soul of Judaism. So you have the fusion of the inner and the outer, where when you have the fusion of that, you have not just the technical body of it, you also have the soul of it which is so much the essence of this program, which is taking chassidus. But chassidus, of course, means chassidus and nigla, because they're part, they're part and parcel of one teda, teda achas l'kolona. It's one teda, it just has different dimensions. So you can learn hilcha Shabbos and nigla, you'll learn about the laws of Shabbos, the mechanics, what you're supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do, when and how, and all the details. And primis teda will tell you what happens on Shabbos, how the worlds are elevated, how we are elevated, how it transforms us, now it always transformed us. 
and didn't always have to be spelled out, except Yechidah's Gula, individuals. But today we need it spelled out, as it's discussed at length, and we've spoken at length about it in this program. So Chayel, when we celebrate Chayel, the birthday, the birthday of these two great Meres these two great luminaries, we honor and celebrate not just something that happened, but something that's happening now. And, the, and in the context of that, of course, in the month of El, the expression Chayel, it brings a Chayis into the month of El. Now, El always existed. El was always the month of accounting for the previous year and the preparation for the new year. But you want a Chayis in El, a vitality, a dynamic energy, a, a, a lebedikite, a life a, full of life and passion and excitement. That's what the Tumayra Sagdeim do. That's what Chassidus does. So it doesn't create anything new but it reveals the inner dimension of the soul within it all. So if you think about the teachings of the Baal Shem Tev, whether it was the focus on Avis Yisrael, loving every fellow, whether it was the concept of perpetual creation, the concept of divine providence, that everything a, a, a Jew sees or hears is a lesson in serving God. And the other principles, these are all principles that always existed. There's no chiddush, fundamental chiddush, but the emphasis and how to do it that's what the Baal Shem Tov and the Alter Rebbe added. Of course, with the Magid, the student of the, the great Magid, the student of the Baal Shem Tov and the teacher of the Alter Rebbe, and all the Rabbeim afterwards. That's what they added. So, Avis Yisrael, it's a mitzvah netayrev, a haftarecha kamaycha. Zek klal gadl betayrev, says Rabbi Akiva. It's a fundamental principle. But the question is, how? How do you do that? By focusing on the neshama of it. When you see the neshama, then you could say, you know what, even if, ostensibly, you could say, how could I like a person? You can't regularly. You could tell me I should be kind and not be mean to anybody. But to actually love another person as you love yourself. But then when you understand the Nisham, which the Baal Shem Tov taught, and the Alter Rebbe explains it so beautifully in Pedek Lamed Beis and Tanya, and other elaborations in Chassidus on this topic, appreciate Nisham, you can appreciate the Av. And the same thing with Hashgoch HaPratis. Divine Providence, yes, there are different opinions on the matter, but Divine Providence is a principle in Teda that God runs the show. And yet, focusing and shining the light to be able to appreciate it. Friedrich Rebbe was once when he visited in Germany. She was, uh, he was uh, staying in a hotel. A delegation of German rabbis from German, Orthodox German rabbis came to see him. And one of the questions they asked him, they were sitting in the lobby, was what did Chassidus come to contribute? Because they didn't have Chassidus. They were an extremely committed community for many, many years. And the Friedrich Rebbe answered with looking around the lobby, says, what do you see? The lobby had these very large, exquisite pillars, marble pillars, pillars of marble. And they described what they see. Well, Friedrich Rebbe stood up from the sofa and walked over to them, with them to the, one of the pillars and shined a lamp on the pillar. It says, what do you see now? You say, we see the engravings, we see the flowers, we see the different, uh, the different um, images etched in the marble. Why didn't you mention that earlier? They said, because we were looking from a distance. From a distance, you saw the marble pillars. We didn't see the details. We didn't see the flowers. So that's what Chassidus did. It did not create anything new. It reveals the flowers within the pillars that were always there. And that's what we thank God for and with gratitude. And we honor and celebrate Chayel. And it's fitting that it be in Chayel, when Chayel also begins the last countdown of the last 12 days of the month of El to Rosh Hashanah, each day corresponding to one of the months of the past year, and the Rebbe adds also to the, to the coming year. So each day corresponds to counting for the month that corresponds. So Chayel corresponds to Tishrei, Yutesel to Cheshvan, and so on. There's much, much more to be said. 
but suffice it with that. And finally, Pasha Kisove. So the Rebbe explains Pasha Kisove, uh, connecting it to Chayel. Kisove is the word Kisove means when you will enter. And, and Bia, meaning Sove, when you enter into something, it's in an intimate, an internalized way. So Kiseitse, the Pasha we're coming from, is about leaving, going out to fight a war, a battle. Because battle is meant to be fought outside of you. And Kisove Laaretz is entering in, and what happens? The mitzvah of Bikurim, of the first fruit offering. Acknowledging that the first fruit, the best fruit, the Bechir, Bikurim from the word Bechir, and that's why Bechir also by human beings, and Bechir Petr Chamer, and other uh, firsts, the morning of Maida'ani we begin with, that you dedicated the first to God. So Kisove Laaretz, when you will enter the land, not just when you will arrive, when you'll enter, which means you'll be internalized in what? In the promised land, in Eretz Yisrael. That's what Chassidus does. It creates a pnimius. So the famous expression in the Gemara, in Brachas, in Ein Yankiv, the Nusach goes like this, Gan Aganav, before he goes out to steal, he um, prays to God to succeed. But that sounds insane. God said, in the Ten Commandments, so you want to ignore God, you're in a moment of denial, a moment of momentary insanity. But you're inviting God and saying, God, help me do something you told me not to do. How do you explain that? The inconsistency, the dissonance. And the answer is because amuna is makif. Makif means you can have amuna. It's not fake amuna. But you haven't internalized it. So the contradiction does not uh, disturb the dissonance between what you believe and what you do. And at the moment you do believe in God, so you ask Him to help and you forget, you ask Him to help you do something that He told you not to do. What does Chassidus come? Takes the moon of Makif and puts it into Aprimius. Kisove Allah In Aprimius, that it's internalized. So it's not just an abstract belief, not just a belief that doesn't necessarily affect and permeate every aspect of you, but one that does infuse and permeate every aspect. So there we have lessons from Tezvovel, Chayel, and Pasha Kisove. I'll also give some cross-referencing. And here's a good opportunity. This is episode 277. If this is the first time you're listening to the program, welcome. If it isn't the first time, so you, you know by now that all these um, episodes are archived in, at chsidisapply.com. Yes, we created its own website because of the demand, because of the need, and to keep it focused and chsidisapplied.com, where you can find this and all previous episodes. And there, in the cross-referencing in episode 82, 132, 178, and 227, in previous years, I spoke about these themes, different angles and different aspects. If you're interested in hearing more about it, you just go there, and you can go to the timestamps, the YouTube version. When you click on the YouTube version on the desktop or a laptop, not, not on a mobile phone, you will find the timestamp that takes you straight to the topic you may be seeking. There's also an opportunity. There you'll see there's a forum where you can submit any question you like. Nothing is off limits. Nothing is taboo. And completely anonymously, same place, chassidusapply.com slash ask, or just look, you'll find it easily, as well as other chassidic resources of applying chassidus to our lives, including a whole section on Samachvav and a whole class section on Ayin Beis. These are the classic discourses of the Rebbe Rashab. Um, explain them, translate them, flowing summaries, and of course the essay contest, the essays that have been submitted over the past five years by essayists from all over the world applying chassidus to a contemporary issue or challenge. 
Let's now go to questions. So question one that we're going to address now is, is it prohibited to see a psychic? Thank you so much for your insightful talks. Quick question, is it against the Jewish religion to see a psychic? Okay, it's interesting, I looked around, I didn't really speak about this except in episode 27, where I did discuss it, and um, so that complements whatever I'm going to say now. So let's first begin with one important statement. Not everyone that calls themselves a psychic is a psychic. They're probably, I would say, the largest percentage, and maybe a very large percentage, are con artists, or looking to make a quick buck and taking advantage of people's vulnerabilities. So that, obviously, there's no, that question, of course, doesn't apply. Why, why you be conned by a con artist? And why spend money? But let us speak about someone that may actually have certain strengths. The Torah does not deny their certain strengths. And yet, there's clear psukim that prohibit the going to anything of that type of form. Whether it's called a psychic or whether it's called other names, sorcerers, fortune tellers. So the Torah talks about it in Pasha Sheftim, Pasha we read last week. In Pasha Sheftim, Kapitel Yud Ches 18, 10 to 12, explicitly prohibits the going there and concludes, Tomim Tim Hashem Alekecha. Go straight in God's path. Tomim Tim Hashem Alekecha actually means be complete, be wholesome, be straight, simple with God. You don't need to find exotic methods and tricks and so on. Even if they actually have some strengths, which again, as I said, is also, in most cases, not even true. It's uh, also in Kedeshim, in Sefer Vayikra, you test Lamed Aleph. And Halachi, you look in Rambam, Hilchis, you say that Teira, Perek Yud, 10, Halachi Gimel, 3. And, of course, in Shulchan Aruch, there's a whole section, a whole simen on it, simen Kufayin Tes, which is 179. So, it, yes, it's clearly prohibited, and just stay away from it. And the, if you want the logic of it, it's because, as I said, be straight with God. God has given us the resources we need. We don't need tricksters. We don't need any type of unique approaches, especially that are not divine and not driven by bitl. There is the concept of a prophet, a prophet, but that also has severe, strict criteria. What is a true prophet versus a false prophet? And a prophet is not about him. It's God prophesizing through this person. So God wants to communicate with us. But anything that starts having its own power, so to speak, and it could have, is something we stay away from. It's like anything that has, is, is not, it's like Kechav Mazolus, for example. The stars and the constellations. They have strengths, given them by God. But it's not their own. All they are is a garzen biyad It's an axe in the hand of the axe man. So we don't look at that as well. Even though there may be some strengths, ain't mazal Yisrael. We don't even look at a mazal because we're beyond mazalus. So that's the brief answer. And as I said, I spoke about episode twenty-seven. Next question: How do I move on from my parents' ugly divorce? Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I hope you get my letter. You don't know me, but you do know my parents. I recently found your show on YouTube. Although I'm not religious, my dad is, and you, and you present Judaism in a very meaningful way. I hope you can address my question. I'm 15 years old, and I've suffered tremendously by my parents' divorce. My parents separated when I was two years old, and my mother hurled all sorts of allegations against my father, namely that he was abusive to her and to me. My, far, my parents finally came to an agreement which gave them joint custody, 
But then my father met his second wife, and my mother moved to a different country, and I went along with her. I became estranged from my father and very bitter. I believed all my mother's lies about my father, how he was abusive, incapable of loving, and manipulative. I even told my father that I no longer loved him and wanted nothing to do with him. I had some very nasty and hurtful things. I said, I said some very nasty and hurtful things to him, thinking that he is the monster my mom made him out to be. My mom even changed my last name to her maiden name. I haven't seen or even talked to my father in many years. Thank God I've begun to see through the mirage. As I mature, I can see that my father is a loving, kind man who has been unjustly maligned by my mother and unfairly taken out of my life. While I can't know what went on during my parents' marriage, I know my father never abused me, and as long as he was able to, was very involved in my life and a great father. I can see a pattern in my mother's family of not remaining religious, of divorce, of accusations against their husbands, and of parental alienation. My mom and two of my aunts have done it. My great aunt also did it. I also, keeps, I, I also see that my father has had a stable marriage with his second wife and seems to be a great dad to his stepkids. Although I haven't seen any of them in years, I can see on Facebook that they all seem to love him. My mom has let me down and I have suffered tremendously as a result of my parents' divorce. I'm still young and live with my mom, but have begun to be really upset at her for all the havoc she's created in my life. I feel I can't reach out to my father after all the horrible things I've said to him, spurred on by my mother and her venom. I don't want to leave her and I don't, want, and I don't know what I would be, what, that I would be able to live with my dad and his wife. Also, my dad is religious, and since my parents divorced, I wasn't raised religiously and don't think that I want to do that right now. I really feel trapped. How do I move on from here? I wrote to you because I don't know who else to write to. This entire situation is so embarrassing and sad for me. Okay. It pains me greatly to read a letter like this, to hear this, and of course, hard going out with full empathy to the person who's written this. And yet... I feel actually honored that you've written to me and that you have entrusted someone that's a complete stranger with your sacred trust and feel honored also to be able to share this with others because it's vital that people be able to speak up and have the dignity of expression and know that someone will listen and respect and respect their questions and respect their space and respect their, their dignity. So, though it's painful, but at the same time, as I said, I feel honored and thank you for the opportunity. So let me share a few words that I can't share on a program like this. Obviously, I always add, it's important you speak to someone and I would be honored if you wanted to reach out to me and we'd speak by phone or in person. But since this is a topic that may affect others and some who have not spoken up and, and, uh, and suffer silently, let me say a few words, firstly. It's horrible, it's terrible what parents can do to children. You know, and I'm assuming, obviously, and I have to always say that disclaimer, that what's written here is accurate. Not to suggest the person writing is not accurate, but often a person writes in pain. It's not always necessary exactly. And I'm, again, I'm not just throwing any aspersions. I just say that whenever you're dealing with something, to really get all the facts, you need to hear everybody involved. But this is not a dintata. So I'm speaking and assuming everything here is exactly accurate. So it's horrible what parents can do to children. It happens all the time, unfortunately. Parents who are supposed to love children. The children have nothing but the parents, especially in young age. 
That's where you learn love. That's where you learn confidence. That's where you learn trust. That's where you learn security and self-esteem and so many other forces that are necessary, vital, to have a, live a healthy life. Unfortunately, parents can strip that away from children, and you're describing exactly that. And though you accuse your mother, as I said, you have to always know all the sides of the story. I'm not suggesting your father did any of the things that your mother said, especially now that you've come to that clarity, and I'm accepting that. But again, the point here is not just about pointing fingers, it's really how to move forward. That's your real question. So firstly, let me say this. I think you must reach out to your father. Yes, you've said terrible things to him, but you, you were under duress and you were misinformed and you were manipulated, frankly, based on the way you describe it. So I don't see any reason you cannot write or talk or in some way open up the door to your father. I assure you he's your father and loves you and you can apologize if you feel the need and speak to him. So I definitely would reach out and would not give up on that at all. Now, where to move and where to live, that's another step. We'll talk about step number one. So that I would immediately advise, without even any hesitation, to reach out. And you'll be surprised, because the second point in that is that you need as much resources and support as you can get. And your father is your father. Your mother clearly has hurt you, and you're not interested in her support. And it could very well be at this point, it's time to move out from her house. You're growing into an adult. I don't know what age you are, but at some point you will be able to build your own life. So my objective here is not to go back and deal with the grievances of the past, though that they're legitimate, but really to empower you to move forward and build your life. You should be able to find the proper spouse and build a family and a home in a beautiful way and learn from what was done to you how not to do it and find a good partner in life that will help you in that regard. That's what you want. You don't want to be haunted by and wounded by, in any way impeded by what happened to your life. What happened, happened, but we can always heal, we can always grow. Whether you can build a relationship with your father, with your mother, that is way to, it, 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 wait to be seen, but you can try. With your mother, it may be more complicated because she directly hurt you, but the stronger you become, the more empowered you'll be to deal with them. But the last thing you want is that your life be consumed with, with reconciliation with your parents or with anger and resentment and with um, and with all the negative feelings that come with this, this type of abandonment and this type of abuse and hurt. So I can't change the past. The hurt is not going to go away, but you can transform the hurt into something very powerful and beautiful and build a relationship. Again, I say that you should talk to somebody besides what I'm saying right now, and I'm just opening the door by beginning the topic, and hopefully it'll give you the courage and the strength to reach out either to myself or to others that can help you with this. And I say this to anyone else who's dealing with similar situation, do not be silent. Reach out. Obviously, look for people you can trust. Here's a forum where I will address it in the, the purest possible way, the most confidential possible way, without any judgment, without any uh, condescension, without any preconceived notions. Everybody deserves to be heard. Everybody deserves to heal. Everybody deserves to grow through the pains and suffering that we've gone through, especially when we were impressionable vulnerable and unprotected children at the hands of unfortunately vicious abusive adults and if this program means anything i can tell you for me one of the most gratifying things is to be able to provide that type of platform provide that type of um, voice to yourselves and to anyone dealing with any type of suffering or any type of pain 
that often we endure silently and don't feel the ability to express or the courage to express, afraid of judgment, afraid of uh, stigma, and so on. So please know that's not the case. And suffice it to say, as I said, the points I just made, more can always be said. And if you are listening, please reach out or reach out to somebody that you feel you can trust. I have spoken about related topic in episodes 268 and 269. With that, let us go to the next question. How much should one reveal about their own past experiences when trying to help others? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I'm a bocher in 770. For the past two years, I've tutored a young shliach from a remote city via Skype once a week. We've developed a good relationship, and I'm tight with the parents too. A few days ago, they told me how the kid is depressed, being disrespectful, questioning life's purpose, low self-esteem, asking them different questions. They revealed to me the shocking news how the kid has issues with inappropriate internet usage. I was and I'm still blown away and speechless. And they told me how they reached out to a from therapist remotely, but they haven't seen results. So I decided that that's it. I have to save this kid's life. And I told him, quote, I'm telling you a secret that no one in the world besides my mashpia knows, my mentor knows, that I too went to therapy since I had emotional issues and saw instant results. And so I have experience in dealing with emotional issues. Emotional issues. They were so touched how much I care for their son to reveal such private things about my life. I didn't say I too have issues with inappropriate usage. I too was exposed at age 13, unfortunately. But I'm having a conference call tomorrow with the parents to discuss with them about the therapy I had, how my life changed for the good, etc., to save this young, innocent, and precious neshama soul, which was exposed to pornography at that tender age of 13. Here's the million-dollar question. Should I tell the parents that I had this issue at age 13 too, and how... I kind of got my, act, my acting out under control somewhat. Or just tell them I have a friend who has these issues and so I know a lot in this field. Or just refer them to the Guard Your Eyes website which deals with these situations. If I do reveal my true story, I have a better chance of helping the kid by sharing my experience and tools I've used, etc. On the other hand, saying the truth might cause them to get turned off from having to do with me. Even though technically... They really think highly of me as I've helped their son out tremendously in the past. What would you suggest, what would you suggest in such a situation? Warm regards. Okay. I don't know if it's still relevant because this letter was definitely written before yesterday, but uh, I'm sure it's relevant to you and maybe to others that have similar question. So from my point of view, the criteria to answer your question is one and one only. What will be helpful to help this child? It's not about you venting. You can find a therapist and other people to talk about. It's about helping the child. So my leaning is, in general, that you reveal only that which is necessary to reveal to help this child. Do you have to start speaking about all your experiences? Not necessarily. Not whether they're because they'll respect you or not respect you. It's not important to tell everybody. And about credibility? Credibility you've shown already, the fact that you have the empathy, the compassion, the care, and that you share that you do have your own therapy without going into details, I don't see why you have to go further than that. I don't see any need to establish and to explain and to uh, reveal what you went through. 
We've had this question asked in, in months ago on this program regarding Shaduchim, how much you reveal about past experiences and so on. But there the question, of course, is going to affect another person's life. Here, this is not affecting someone else's life. Now, if you were suffering from this, and the question is, should you be a tutor when you yourself have problems? It's another discussion. That's not the issue. Clearly, you've gotten beyond it, thank God. So I see no reason, unless there's a very strong reason that it will help the child, that you should have to share this. And I say this across the board with any given situation. You share what's necessary. You don't share what's not necessary. There's no need to go overboard. Everything has its time, its place, and to the right people. So that's my response to this. Unless there's something I'm missing, there's always information that may not have been shared here, that that would be my opinion and my suggestion. Okay. Next question. Immaturity. How do I overcome my feeling immature at age 40? Something I was told repeatedly when I was a child. I'm 40 plus and I feel like I'm immature. As a child, I was told this many times. My father even told me before my bar mitzvah that he needs to talk to a rav if I'm fit to lay tefillin. Ooh. When I need to discipline my children, I sometimes break out in a laugh while trying to keep a serious face. How do I overcome this? For my reaction, a father telling a child whether he needs to ask a rav is, I would consider it to be quite uh, harmful. But uh, let's break this into a few parts. First of all, no parent is perfect. And we all as parents laugh and smile to ourselves at times when we try to discipline our children. We ourselves were guilty exactly what our children are doing. And we sometimes even think, why do the children respect us so much? If they really knew who we were, you know, why, why do they see us as such authority? So we all have that type of sense of, uh, I'm call it duplicity, but a certain type of uh, humor, you can say, lightness about it. So none of us are perfect. That's number one. So the issue of disciplining your children, you have a responsibility to discipline them. As far as your feelings of immaturity goes, and unfortunately it sounds like it was fed by your father or other uh, experiences in your impressionable years. Look, we all go through maturity physically. There's a chronological maturity as a child grows into an adult, it's adolescence and adulthood, and finally into, uh, mature, into the later mature process as we grow older. But then there's psychological, emotional, and intellectual maturity, which means not just your mind grows, but your attitude your emotions, that you're not affected by the same things that a child is affected by. If you're indeed suffering from immaturity, whether it's an emotional immaturity or other type of immaturity, so that's something you should speak to with someone and see firstly how accurate it is. It could very well be it's somewhat exaggerated because you still remember the haunting voice of your father and that still, res- that still echoes in your psyche and it's causing you to feel that way. Every one of us, as I said, is not perfect. Everyone else is also not perfectly mature. We all have immature elements to us. So I, need to he- I would need to hear more with this feeling of immature is. Is it completely in your mind? Completely in your own subjective perspective? Or is there more to it? And if there's more, that can be addressed. If it's in your head, that also needs to be addressed and people can help you. You're a father today. You're over 40 years old. So you have to rise to the occasion and go reach for, for help if you think you cannot do it yourself. So my answer to this, as I said, we break it into several parts. I would not uh, say I'm not going to educate my children because I'm immature. That's not an excuse. You do the best you can. 
And you should talk to someone and figure out what, what do you mean by you're not immature? What does that mean exactly? Do you have tantrums? Are you unable to control your own uh, impulses? What does the immature mean? Do you um, have a, a very thin skin? There's a lot of different aspects in how that manifests. And with loving people, and hopefully you have a loving spouse, you can get through anything and figure out how much is real, how much is not real, and what you can do about it. At the end of the day, behaving maturely makes you more mature. Rise to the occasion. Okay, next question. A woman's maiden name. Does the Rebbe speak about a woman not keeping her maiden name after marriage? I don't recall the Rebbe ever speaking about it, so let's just get that out of the way. But I will say this. Where does it come from, the concept? Remember, there was a time that no one, no one had family names. There were no surnames. People were called by their first name. Some point in mid, the Middle Ages, uh, they say more like the 17th, 18th century, in different countries happened in different ways, surnames began to be added because too many people were called by the same name. So they gave a surname either based on occupation or based on your father's name or based on the city you lived in, etc. And different countries did this in different ways. Some countries actually did it in a demeaning way, especially for Jews. Some did it in a more respectful way. So the whole concept of a, of a surname, of a family name, is altogether not a Torah thing. In the Torah, you don't find family names. You have Moshe, Aden, you have the Shvatim, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, etc. So since the concept is not a Torah concept, the whole idea of a woman assuming the name of her husband is basically part of the culture. When it comes to Judaism, there is the concept of the woman deferring to the man, the man being, so to speak, the leader of the household. Not that a woman isn't a leader, but in these type of matters, some say they quote mishpachtim, lebeis avesom. The Torah speaks about, when it talks about families, lebeis avesom, to the house of their fathers, beis avicha. So that can be somewhat of a, uh, I wouldn't say it's a halacha, not even a minig, but somewhat the, the, the reason that that's the way it went, the minig went, that the women assumed the husband's names. Now, for professional reasons, can a woman continue using her own maiden name or also her maiden name? I've not seen Rabbonim say no, unless there's some particular reason that it seems to be create, will create conflict. But uh, I don't think anyone has Pascha no. But the overall, that's the custom. And uh, as I said, the custom of the land sometimes affects also Jew. Dina de Machusa Dina, when it's not a halachic issue, which means we follow the customs of the land which is more or less, I believe, the reason that this is done that way, with some of the smach that I just gave the descriptions of the Torah also. We know shvatim, which tribe you are, goes by the father. But whether you're a Jew or not, goes by the mother. So knowing a tribe is more connected to a name. It's a name, it's an ID, so to speak, the ID of the person. And the Rebbe explains this, why the shvavit, which is more giluim, goes by the man, and, uh, and the father, and the etzim inyan of Yiddishkeit goes by the woman, which is more v'atzmi. So you could say the same thing with names. It's not the atzmi, it's more of an ID, the ID number. So that's what I have to say on this. If anyone has more information on the topic, by all means, this is what I'm sharing is what I'm aware of and what I've, uh, what I've discovered or what I've researched and what I've heard over the years. Okay, next question. Talk about women. Women singing nigunim. How do we explain men not being allowed to hear women singing? And how do we manage this singing at a Shabbos table when there's an equal mix of men and women? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I have a question regarding singing Nigunim. 
at the Shabbos table. Due to the prohibition of Kail Isha, Kail Isha is the voice of a woman, it's called Kail Isha Erva, to be exact, in the Gemara. The Kail Isha is sexual. The male seated at the table are not permitted to listen to females over a certain age sing. What happens, unfortunately, is that whatever I start, whenever I start a nigan, the women take that as a cue to begin chatting, since they feel they cannot join in the singing. The vibe at the table is very haphazard, and I do not like it. Is there any way to counteract this? Perhaps could the women hum along in a low tone, so at the very least they can participate in the Veda of the nigan. It bothers me that women feel as though the nigan does not belong to them. We should not let the halacha alienate important members of our Jewish family. With many thanks in advance. Okay, yeah. Another question in this regard, girl singing. I have, a, I, ha, I have a question to you, Rabbi Jacobson. How do I explain to my five-year-old son, who asked me why girls are allowed to listen to boys singing, but boys are not allowed to listen to girls singing? That's interesting. I looked at the previous episodes. I thought for sure I would have spoken about this, and I'm almost sure I did, but I couldn't find it, to be honest. They are, after all, 276 episodes. So if anybody does know when I spoke about it, I know it's an odd request. If I don't know, how would you know? But who knows? Please point it out to me. But we'll continue looking. But regardless, um, let's first begin with the actual subject matter itself. So when it says in the Gemara, it's also the hair, why a woman covers her hair after marriage. What is erva? Erva is an expression for sexuality. Some say it's connected to sensuality. That things are not because there's something ugly about it or something disgusting about it or, or uh, obscene. On the contrary, because it's so pure and holy, what do you cover when something is very holy? What, what do you do when something is very holy, like the Holy of Holies? No one enters there. The reason Tzniyas in general, the dignity, Tzniyas of course is dignity as we've talked about many times, why we cover ourselves, and whether it's women or men, is go with, walk with dignity before your God. And parts of the body that are designated for intimate experiences, whether it's intimacy in marriage or people's personal intimate spaces, this is something we cover physically and also psychologically. Because remember, covering is not just you can cover something and still be very promiscuous in your body language, and other forms of expression. So covering is also a certain element of discretion, of being discreet. The Torah designates what has that sensual power. And among the things is, besides body parts that we're, we're all aware of, are also other parts, and that includes the hair, and includes a woman's voice. Now you could say a man's voice can also be stimulating and also emotional, but it doesn't have quite that power. I remember once a sikha, and I'm still looking for the source, where the Rebbe says, Nigan is gaguim, is yearning. And women have a deeper element of yearning than men. So when they sing, it's coming from an even more intimate place in the soul than a man. Kulmus Halev is a song. It's the, it's the quill of the heart. And that heartfeltness is more there in the feminine side. So the Taylor is not saying because of the ugly voice or because there's something wrong or because it's going to, because it's going to uh, provoke someone. It's because of that beauty, of that inner beauty that remains within now that has to be taught properly because you don't want to make a woman or a girl feel something less. On the contrary, something more. That's on the general concept of what we're talking about. Now, as far as the practical side of it, so first of all, as well pointed out, the iser, the prohibition is not for a woman to sing. It's for a man to hear her sing. A woman's allowed to sing. 
There's questions whether she sees men there, there's different discussions. But it's not her singing is the issue, the issue is that singing should be done among women because of that intimate nature. And that's why you have today a lot of different groups cropping up with women as musicians and singers and so on, and it's great. Let them find that expression because it was never a problem, it was never the issue with them expressing themselves, women expressing. On the contrary, I just said their expression of song is more powerful even than a man's expression of song. As far as situations where you have a table with people, yes, it's true, it can become very chaotic. So there are different halachas on the matter whether women sing in a group or humming along and you don't really hear their voice is an issue. But if you go with the more stricter interpretations where even humming, and even if it's a group, is, uh, is, it should be avoided, then I think the way to do it is probably the best way is always to go up front and talk about it. We're going to sing a nigan now and maybe even explain. And no, it's not a time to chatter. It's a time to participate. Sometimes you participate just like when the Rebbe would sing a song, he was the only one that sang and we listened. And then we followed up with the song. So singing is part of it. Listening is also a part of it. And I'm not trying to be patronizing. I'm just trying to suggest creative ways how you can deal with something of this nature. I think if we apply ourselves and we understand the soul and the basis of the whole concept of women singing, it would be a lot easier to explain it to ourselves and to others. I think many of us are self-conscious because it sounds like, you know, weird. And I'm not suggesting it doesn't initially sound that way. But when you begin to understand how Taylor is so sensitive to sensuality and to sexuality because of its beauty, because of its power, then you begin to understand that everything matters, even a touch. Yes, because everything has potency in it. We live in a desensitized world. So who cares who sings? Who cares if someone touches someone? What's the big thing? A handshake. But when you're in a very sensitive place, where you recognize the beauty of these forces, then it's a very different story. As far as how to explain it to a child, I think the way you explain intimacy to a child, in a way, you could say that just like boys and girls don't go to school together, just like they don't intermingle and socialize together. Why? Because that's being reserved from the time when they get married and God created a man and a woman to get together in sanctity and be married and join in an intimate way. I'm not saying you have to say all that to the child, but that's the, the gist of it. And therefore, the same thing is with singing, as it is with other things. Why does your mommy wear a shaitl and your father doesn't? The answer is because here has certain power that Hashem says. Same thing, a woman's voice has power. So though she can hear you sing, because boys don't have quite that power. I think you can explain it without in any provocative way, without being controversial, by simply explaining that different women, different, different people, men and women, have their strengths, and the Torah is teaching us how to harness them and how to direct them, not to how to silence them, how to use them for the fullest possible way and be careful when something is, is, not, is, is not being, can be abused. And the same thing with if the child asks you, why do I have to cover myself? The answer is because certain parts are more intimate, certain parts are more powerful, more holy, and they need to be respected in a world that is hostile and a world that's more callous to, to uh, the intimate. Okay. With that, let us move on to the next question. The next question is, interesting question. Have you interviewed people who have become observant and then returned to their previous lifestyle to understand the causes for their choices? The way the person worded it, a little more bluntly, have you interviewed people who have come and gone to Frumkite to find out what caused them to return to their previous lifestyle? I've always been afraid, embarrassed, too insecure to debrief anyone who has done this. 
No, so my answer is no. I, have, I don't interview people, especially not people who go through different challenges in life. It's not the way to go. I've had conversations with people. So that's how I would phrase it, conversations with many people. And yes, I've heard many different thoughts and feelings and so on. I'm not going to create any formula because I don't think that's what we should be doing. I'll talk more in a sensitive way. But I want to begin that I did discuss some of the topics of people who become from and then have left it. And, you know, I always qualify what does from mean, what means leaving it. So all these words are loaded many ways, but I'm using words that people use, meaning ostensibly or seemingly observant, and now they're seemingly not. Because many often I see people who seemingly are observant and are not observant, and people who are seemingly not observant and they're very observant. So that's why I'm qualifying that. So I spoke about it in episodes 21, 195, and 271. What I'd like to say about this, at least briefly, is the following. In general, when talking about people and their journeys, don't ever judge a person until you've been in their shoes. We don't know what people go through. In both directions, whether when they're coming closer to Yiddishkeit and closer to observance, and what level of observance, and to people who may be traveling, God forbid, the other direction. Or those that were born into it. We have to always tread carefully because we're dealing with a soul, a holy, divine soul, that's going on its trajectory, on its journey, and that journey is a sacred journey. And our role is to be either be helpful or supportive, but definitely not to be critical and judgmental. So if there's ever conversation, and I've had many with people who've gone on this journey in both directions, the key thing was sensitivity. If they asked me to help, I tried to help. I tried to first understand them. Someone says, you know, I've been from my whole life. I don't feel for it. Just a few weeks ago, I met with someone who told me this. And many times, what do I do? So each case, of course, is case by case. There's no one rule. So in a case like that, I try to first understand what's going on. Like, what? why were you more observant? Why less? And sometimes you find out they're in a marriage that's a bad marriage and their, co- and their spouse is not observant. So it weakens them. It drains them because they feel they don't have a partner. Sometimes it's due to other factors. Sometimes it's due that the observance they had was never really filled with vitality. It was by rote. It was mechanical. It was out of guilt. It was out of pressure. It was out of uh, peer pressure, etc. So that's why it's impossible to talk about all scenarios. You have to look at them all and you help the person. And sometimes you say, what is observance? Are you talking about the details of following the laws of Shabbos and Kashrus? Or are you talking about connection to God, your soul and spirituality? And then often you'll hear, spirituality is not a problem, I'm having the details. Some people sometimes have a general spiritual crisis. So that's why it's impossible for me to speak about all these scenarios because there's so many. So our role is to understand the person in order to help them in the way they're asking you to help them, to help them help themselves actually. So that's how I would respond to this question. It's not about trying to understand the exact and analyze, you know, what's the matter with you that you're returning to your lifestyle? Because many people ha- take that attitude that's almost like, what happened to you? And maybe you're going to do tshuva. And it becomes very, actually very, uh, a, a very, um, what's the word I want to use? It, it's a turnoff for a person to hear. You know, I've seen people who have not been around for a long time in the observant circles. They come in, someone says, ah, you had a serious tshuva, you came for Simchas Tehdi, you came for Yom Kippur. It's not a pleasant thing to say to somebody. It sounds very condescending, very judgmental, and you don't even know where the person is coming from and why and when. And it sounds like, I, you know, you came back to where I am. I know exactly what's right, and now you're joined us back. I'm there, you're not there. That's a very inappropriate approach. That's why I'm careful how we speak about this topic. So I think I've covered enough in saying about this. 
And with this, let us move on. If there's any follow-up, of course, please don't hesitate to write. Sometimes there's more to people's questions than meets the eye. I've known many times I've read a question, gave an answer, and then I received a follow-up from the writer that I actually meant a lot more, and I just didn't write it out. So if that's the case, please don't hesitate regarding any of these questions or other questions as well. Okay. Let's do some follow-up now. So as a follow-up in the last week's episodes 273 through 276, I've been talking about Misas Bezdin, Eishas Yifas Toya, from Parshas Kiseitze, that was last Sunday, and Ben Sedir also from Kiseitze. These were about the four different types of deaths that the Teda prescribes. The Eishas Yifas Toya is the beautiful woman that is seen by someone in the conquest in war, during war. And Ben Sedir is the rebellious child, the rebellious son. So hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I just wanted to thank you very much for answering some of my questions the last few weeks regarding the four Mrs. Bezdin, these four deaths. Eishi Shifaster, the beautiful woman, held captive after a war, and Ben Sedunameda, the rebellious son. They are concepts I always wondered about, and you shed a lot of light. Thank you for all the sources you quoted. I cannot, I cannot imagine the time you put in to research these and all topics you speak about. Much appreciated. Lots of continued Hatzlocha. Another person writing on this topic says, I was fascinated how you took topics that everybody stays away from, controversial topics and topics that seem impossible to explain, and you really took the bull by the horns and you explained it with many, many sources. It's really powerful for me. Because I could see from that that even other topics that seem controversial have also answers. So thank you so much for that. Another follow-up was regarding images of women, which we spoke about last week in episode 276. Shalom, Rabbi Jacobson. I listened to your segment regarding images of women in publications, and I'm happy that the Rebbe not only didn't ban them, but even encouraged them. I don't think you appreciate how extreme it has become in Eretz Yisrael, where images of women are disappearing from public life. Pictures or posters that, have, that do have women's faces, even if modest, are routinely defaced and, or ripped off. It has gotten so ridiculous that an advertisement showing typical family in a park show two men together with boys playing, no females present at all. Does this represent a normal family, quote-unquote? We see more and more that girls in many communities are afraid to be seen or heard. All in the name of Tznias. Unfortunately, many quote-unquote firm communities are not following previous acceptable traditions and customs from even one generation ago and showing respect for women, but are only becoming more extreme and less tolerant, and our rabbinic leaders are too timid or too scared to stand up to these extremist groups and trends. Blessings. Okay. Well, I, uh, I will just say, when I said the Rebbe encouraged under certain circumstances, let that get that clear, as I discussed then. So your letter speaks for itself, and I really have nothing to add. And as I just said, if anybody wants more on this topic, I spoke about it last week. Okay, and one more follow-up on healthy intimacy. The follow-ups to healthy intimacy, episode 273, made me so angry. Now there the question was about a woman writing how she does not, she feels used and she feels uh, actually abused in intimacy in her marriage because the husband is not respecting her in that context, in that environment. So I discussed it. 
And this person writing now is upset with how people responded to it. I hope she's not angry at me. I don't think it's about me. I think it's about what the... So she said, but the, health, the follow-ups made me so angry. Really? A woman writes about her concerns that there may be undercurrents of abuse or lack of respect in from bedrooms, and all the responses it gets are men whining about not getting enough action or worried that they won't get responses. I'm sorry, they won't get enough when they get married. Seriously? That is your takeaway from this woman's piece? I mean, the responses themselves just prove the writer's point. If this doesn't show that there's a problem, then I don't know what else will. How did a question about awareness of consent and respect for women become yet again about men? Women are worrying about being sexually coerced at best, and instead of protecting women and helping to spread awareness, men are worrying that they won't get their needs met. Do we not see a sort of imbalanced equation going on here? So yes, I totally agree with you. And if I recall correctly, when I spoke about the topic, I did address the issue itself. Obviously, whenever you're dealing with a woman complaining or saying something of this nature, you always want to hear both sides. So that, that's for simple balance. And really be sensitive to everything here. Because sometimes the men don't even mean. I'm not talking about men that are doing things that are inappropriate. But sometimes men don't even understand that they're being aggressive or they're being inappropriate or they're not receiving the proper consent because they're halachas about this. They're halachas, how you're allowed to approach your wife regarding intimacy. It has to only be with her complete goodwill and complete consent. There's no such thing as, God forbid, doing something against her will. So, unfortunately, yes, some people are selfish and they focus on themselves. But thank you for your points and um, points well taken. And that's why I read it. Okay. With that, let us now go to the the Chassidus question, which is a follow-up part to the 10 Hidden Spheres to last week's episode. So to sum up quickly, the question, the question was, please explain the 10 hidden spheres, where they are located, and their role, application, and relevance to our lives. So I'm not going to review everything I said last week. I'll just sum it up. We spoke about their role of the spheres in general as an interface. Divine attributes from which evolve human attributes, the human personality, So they become like a bridge, an interface between us emulating God's attributes so then we can connect to God himself, who is, of course, beyond all attributes. In those attributes themselves, in those spheres themselves, there is the revealed ones, usually called the esospheres of Atsilas, esospheres hagluyas, the revealed ones, and there's the concealed ones, which are higher than Atsilas, and I cited the sources of where the location is, is Atik or Arich or Akudim, and I actually brought which my modem say it. In one place in Ayim Bey says also Ak, Adam Kadman. But as he explains in one of the Maimorim, that, uh, that um, one of the Maimorim, just looking it up, that they're all Mechuvan. In the Maimer, in Ulam Chai and Ani, in the Beer, in Derek Mitzvah and in Maimer Rabbim, they're all Mechuvim because it's higher than Atzilis, and higher than Atzilis is considered Ainsef. But we stop there. The question is, the Esosphere of the highest level is Ak, we know that very often, and most people, if you ask them who looks at this, Esosphere of Agnusis are Lifni at Simpson. But these sources clearly say that Rizal says it's after the Simpson. It's on these levels, Atik, Arich, and. Um, and uh, Akudim, and I mentioned Adam Kadman. 
Yet we do have sources that we do find the ten hidden spheres in Eirein Sof, Lifniat Simpson. And what's the source for that? And that's what we're going to continue now and address the second half of this topic. So in the Pardes Shar Seder Atzilis, chapter 4, it's one of the first places there's a source for the concept of the ten hidden spheres. Now this is not Lifniat Simpson because we know the Pardes did not talk or know about the Simpson. But he talks about it in Eirein Sof, the concept of ten hidden spheres. This is cited in Eira Tere in Yonim, page 170, in Ki'imcha Samachvov, and in Korav Hashem Tofre Samaches. All citing this Pardis. But the Pardis says that the ten hidden spheres, besides the fact that we're not talking about Simpsum, he says is the root of the containers, of the Kalim. And the Eiras don't have a root because the Eiras are connected to the divine, so there's no root. They never went through any diminishment. Remember, the paradise is not connected to this. It does not know of the tzimtzum, which is another discussion what that means. So therefore, he says, it's the root of the kalim. But according to the Alter Rebbe, this brings, the Alter Rebbe says clearly, and this is in Hanoches Harap, in the beer, Chassidus calls it the beer of Shishim Hemo Meloches. So there's a beer in Hanochas Harab, that's Hanochas of Rapinchas Koditz. I'm sorry, Rapinchas Rezes. So Harab, page 164, he says in the name of the, of the Alter Rebbe, and this Chassidus cites the quote, he says there are spheres also in Eirein Sof, but not in Atzmus. In Atzmus there are no spheres, but there are spheres in Eirein Sof. So we see from this that there's also an Eirein Sof, and this is clearly Eirein Sof before the Tzimtzum, also, ten hidden spheres. So what do we have from this? That the ten hidden spheres have many levels, basically. We'll discuss that in a minute. So how do you cons- reconcile that with Arizal? That there are no spheres or definitions in pre-Tzimtzum, because the Tzimtzum says, that's what the Arizal says, in Eitz Chaim, that before the Tzimtzum, the Eir, Eir Poshet, completely seamless. And as we said before, according to the Arizal, the ten hidden spheres are after the Tzimtzum. So how do you reconcile the Alter Rebbe with Arizal? So see, this answers the example with names. That the ten hidden spheres before the tzimtzum are not really a mitzias. They're not yet substance. They're more conceptual. It's like names. When you call someone by a name, before the name was called, he doesn't yet have that identity. The name draws it out from him. So it's not just a hidden sphere. A hidden sphere would be, here you have a revealed faculty of, let's say, chesed, kindness. And that chesed behind the door, so-called behind the curtain, there's a hidden chesed, like keiches nalomim, like hidden keiches, or even keiches atzmim. But when you say a name, you say you're a chazan, you're in this, etzim nefesh is higher than names. So the name draws it out, and that's a moshul that's brought in Teda Eir, in Vayichi, in the Hesophis, and other places, specifically in the Maimer Hillel, Halel, I'm sorry, Halel in Derech Mitzvah Just looking for all the sources here. Um, yeah, Tered Vayechi, 103C, Halen Derech Mitzvah cited in Eda Tered in Yonim, page 277, Samach to Samach Tofresh Nun Zayin, Kimcha, again, Samach Vov, and Ayin Beis, volume 2, page 968. And that's considered the highest example for Esa Sfira Sagnuzis, names. Because before, there was nothing there. The name is what draws it out when he acts on it. 
So really, the, the spheres actually are revealed, not before the tzimtzum, they become revealed. The hidden spheres, I should say, become concrete, more concretized as hidden spheres after the tzimtzum. So in a mimer in, uh, in Vayered, no, Vayered Hashem, Tovshin Tezvov, He says that that's the, the vart, that after that the Esos why that Rizal says there's no spheres before the Tzimtzum because there's no Metzius. They don't exist yet. And the example of names can explain that. And where's the Metzius of Esos is either in At, Ak, or Atik, Akudim, Atik, or Arich, as I explained. Okay. Now, now as far as there's the examples. The examples in Chassidus brings many different examples from uh, about the Esos And there's actually a fascinating ha'odah from the Rebbe in Tovshin Ches. Friedrich Rebbe's Maimer, Tovshin Ches. The Maimer is Zehayim, uh, from Yud Beis Tammuz, Tovshin Ches. In that volume, page 243, a long And the Rebbe says there about the Mesholim, there's different examples. I'm going from the bottom up, from the more tangible to the more abstract. There's the example of a flame in a coal. This is from Sefer Yitzira. What is this example? That the revealed flame in a hot coal is the revealed spheres. The flame that's within the hot coal that you can't see is the hidden spheres. Yet Chassidus goes and says beyond that, the Moshe of the Pardis is of a flintstone. In a flintstone, you don't even have a flame within the... It's not even concealed. A flimstone you can put into water, you can touch, and you won't feel any heat. That's not the same with the hidden fire and the hot coal. So that makes it more abstract in the ten hidden spheres. But even there, it's still flintstone is still a source for flame, not for water, for example. So it has some shape and form, at least potentially. So then comes the example in Chesidus of Keiches HaKlulim Be'etzim HaNefesh. The keiches that are encompassed in the core of the soul. This is in Derech Mitzosecha Mayim Rabim, that we spoke, chapter 66, what we spoke before, V'olim Chayan Ani. Then there's an example in Chsidis in the Maimonim of Pesach Tov Kuf Samach Dalet, which is the Maimar of Eira Tere B'Shalach, page 481, of the Keich HaMaskil, the Seichel and the power of Seichel. That's another example. And that's also cited in the Derech Mitzosecha and the Mayim Rabim. Chapter 67 that I just mentioned. And then there's ultimately the highest example of names. Because even the Kayach HaMaskil, there's still an Indian of Seichel there. It's the power for Seichel. Names is the most abstract. And that's in Tere'er and the other sources I just cited before. So the Rebbe explains that when it comes to Chassidus, Chassidus uses Mosholim sometimes. One Mosholim explains more the relationship between the hidden spheres and the revealed spheres. That's the example of the, of the fire and the coal, the hidden fire and the coal, and the revealed fire. If you want to speak about how the ten hidden spheres are, be, are, are abstract and, and, and are beyond stru- structure, you go to the example of the Tzura Chalomish of the, of the Flintstone and the other examples that I used. And then the Rebbe says, if, regarding the example of names, that's, show, that's definitely a different level of Esosphiris Agnusus, a completely higher level. The Rebbe is therefore suggesting, more than suggesting, it's not just another example, it's actually a higher level of spheres. 
Whereas the other ones can be examples. Now, this needs to be reconciled somewhat with the Maimon Tofrei Samaches. So there's a Maimon Tofrei Samaches, I mentioned it before, Kod of Hashem, where there he says there are three general examples for the ten hidden spheres that reflect three different levels of the ten hidden spheres. The only thing is we don't have the end of that Hemshech, of that Maimon, so we only have that statement stated there. A few more places I'd give you some sources here. Is Luke and I in Bay's volume two, the Maimer Achre and Emmer Tofresh Ayin Hey, page nine page nine sixty-five and on. Bisha Sha'ola Mesha the Rebbe's Maimer Tofshin Khafhei. And regarding the function of I of uh, the Ten Hidden Spheres, I am Bay's chapter fifteen, chapter twenty-one and on, and volume two, page nine sixty-three and on. So I think with that we covered the Esasphiris, and now let me conclude with the three essays quickly because of time limitations. So as always, we do three essays. Well, you know what? Before I go to the essays, let me just say one more thing. So the practical application of this, I think, is understood when you understand the concept of the, of the um, interface, is that this teaches us. All the levels of these spheres teaches us. This is all the levels we connect with. So just like we connect with our revealed faculties, let's say chesed. When you do chesed, what you want to do is connect it with a chesed that's concealed so you can reveal more and channel even more love in your life. Then you channel it even from a deeper level of chesed because all these levels of the spheres is also within us. So whether it's four levels or five levels, you go all the way to the etzim nefesh, and the point is to interface and draw forth from your deepest core soul into your revealed faculties. And what's even more beautiful, that's on the individual, is that we also connect to God's, the levels in the divine energies. That first we connect our chesed to Hashem's chesed. Then to Hashem's hidden chesed in Arich. And then Hashem's hidden chesed in Atik. And then Hashem's hidden chesed in Akudim. And then Hashem's hidden chesed in Ak. Until Hashem's hidden chesed even lifni Simtsum. But this is a journey. Each one of them is different. Because each, which is another discussion for right now, but each one of them is in a more abstract way where you're connecting with the divine attribute. First, it's a more defined attribute until it becomes so abstract that it becomes so much more just an expression of godliness, like the name of Hashem calling him Kael or Chesed. And then there's how it takes on more shape and form in the lower levels of the ten hidden spheres until they express themselves in their revealed spheres. Regarding the three essays, essay one is in Hebrew, which is Tuvnus Hamibilis Letikun Atzmi Betech Simcha. Methods that lead to self-improvement with joy by Tziri Livnani, age 56, Kfar Chabad, Israel. A teacher in Mechlelas Beisivka, Kfar Chabad. Okay. So, as the, as the title indicates, that we live in a world that is filled with all kinds of different challenges. And we're always looking for, to grow and in our journey, in our trajectory. People go through challenges where they regret things they've done and they want to improve it or they want to grow. So this essay is dedicated to, uh, to methods of how we actually produce growth in a person's life based on a Hasidic approach. Very thorough essay, step-by-step process. And doing it all, of course, with great joy, which is the driving force. So it talks about both the healthy person and how we waver from that at times. And then different psychological approaches to correct our ways. Very nice table of uh, expressing different approaches. 
And then the Teirach Siddhis approach of how to do this. So very well done. Thank you so much for this essay. Okay. Very well annotated as well. The next essay is Bring Back the Fire. Mimi Blasberg, age 19, Brooklyn, New York. Student at Machon Alta Seminary. There's a pit, a growing black hole. It consumes your energy, passion, and motivation until all you feel is nothing. At the end of the day, this is apathy. As Jews, apathy is our biggest enemy. This essay goes on to how do you fight apathy? How do you bring back the fire, the passion? The, how we get frozen, where it comes from, how it gets to you. Don't forget to remember, Zohar, remembering Amalek, which is the force of apathy and coldness and indifference. Strategy is key. Action is the main thing. And that you have the confidence that you will make it. Good, very good essay as well. Thank you for that. And finally, the third essay, Spiritual Oxygen Masks. Hasidic tools for the empath. The empath in you. Rivka Cohen, age 23, Naples, Florida. Yeah. A fortified city is so cold because the defensive wall surrounds it, defining its borders and safeguarding its inhabitants against the perils of the outside world. People too require defense against external influences. This essay will aim to characterize the advantages and disadvantages of an empathetic nature highlight the essential value of empathy in the world, and demonstrate how Chassidus offers the tools for empaths to overcome the unique challenges and channel their gifts, to know where to create boundaries and when to connect with others, not to go too far. And goes on to explain this, know the heart of a stranger, psychologists define empathy, like one person with one heart, Chassidus defines that connection, from other-centered to God-centered, Gevur of Teferah's discipline and compassion, and love your fellow like yourself, securing your own oxygen mask before assisting others. And then goes on to a whole list of how to, how to lessons for, for the empath to internalize in relating with others and self-care. Again, extremely good essay. These essays can all be seen now as they're posted literally just fresh these days at, at chassidahsupply.com as well as when you subscribe to our newsletter, we will send them to you every time they're updated. So this has been episode 277 of My Life Chassidah Supplied. And I want to wish everybody, as we continue the month of El, a very constructive Melech Basada month where you reach out to God who's in the field, the Melech in the field. As we prepare for a new year, it should be a to all of us in Gashmi's, Beruchnis, in every possible way. And we should be blessed. This has been Chassidah Supplied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Thank you so much. Be well.